Now, I'm excited to be talking to our guest today who uh, not too long ago uh, took a pretty epic national parks tour, it seemed like, uh, just kind of stalking his Instagram feed anyway about that. Uh, so hopefully we'll get a chan uh, chance to talk a little bit about some of the epic views that he saws. But our guest today is Max Altshuler. He's the VP of Sales Engagement and Outreach, as I mentioned. He's also an executive investor, an advisor, the author of three books. And his Instagram bio also says he's a hashtag girl dad, as well as a world traveler to 80 plus countries at this point. Max, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so we're going to uh, chat about a couple of things, but man, that was a pretty epic road trip you and the family took uh, a few weeks ago. Did you have a great time seeing the the sights of, of the, the Midwest and, and West? Yeah, we uh, we wanted to go somewhere we'd never been before, and I'd never been to Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, um, and a couple of those places, and it was uh, it was a blast. You know, the, there's I think there's so many people who are like, I want to travel abroad, I want to see the world, and we've got some really incredible places um, right here at home in the U.S. So if you ever get a chance, uh, you know, we did Seattle to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho to um whitefish and glacier montana i got this in whitefish the uh, elephant oh, nice. painting over here and um down to uh wyoming um jackson into utah into colorado into arizona it was uh it was a blast great time yeah uh if you want to if you want to feel a little jealous and go on max's instagram because those pictures especially from zion are absolutely beautiful and i think you're exactly right like i've i've been fortunate enough to get to all 50 states and there's a lot of beauty right kind of in our, our back door here in the united states that some people uh tend to miss but that's not the focus of today we're going to start with a quick uh, rapid fire round just to get to know you a little bit more so first question for you is uh when you were a little kid what did you want to grow up to become uh, I actually was an architect major in college and, uh, really wanted to do, um, really want to build buildings, uh, not homes per se, but like massive buildings, skyscrapers, things like that, uh, football stadiums. And I was always somebody who's good with my hands, good at building things. Mm -hmm. One of my first words was demolition. Uh, my dad likes to say, cause we'd build these little blocks and then we'd take the hot wheels cars and we'd swing them into the blocks and knock everything over and he'd say demolition. So I'd start saying demolition after him, but I was always a builder. Um, was actually an architecture major. And then the housing market crashed 0708, which was my junior year of college. Didn't make much sense to graduate with a specialized degree in something that, uh, you know, people weren't doing anything, uh, with. So, uh, pivoted to, uh, finished the rest of my courses in business. Fortunately, they had a Bachelor of Interdisciplinary Studies, which was basically two minors equal a major. So I got to okay. keep my design credits, get the business credits, and uh, that got me into entrepreneurship. It's just a different type of building things. Yeah, I, th I like that perspective. Instead of building buildings, you're building businesses in a way. So I like it. And hopefully not destroying them. Hopefully you're not still bringing that demolition attitude to some, some of the businesses that you're working on. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes you want to stress test things. You know? See, where, well, where is true. this thing going to break? And uh, maybe it's good to have good to have a deconstruction point of view on things. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I like that perspective a lot. And uh, what's a, a current favorite hobby of yours? Um, I still play hockey. Uh, at 33 years old, I play rec league hockey um, as competitive this as I can. Is ice hockey versus field hockey? Ice hockey and roller hockey. Yeah, whatever I okay. can find uh, for pickup locally, I'll play. Okay, and what, what position are you in hockey? Defense. 
Okay. All right. Yeah. Like stopping, stopping people from scoring hat. Like, I don't know. I played soccer growing up and I was always more midfield and attacking. And that, that's the glory though, right? Is the like, is scoring a goal. Is there, what's the glory of being a, a defensive hockey player? I'm a scoring defender. Um, uh, I got a re- I got a, a pretty nice slap shot and uh, so f- feed me at the point it's going in. But okay, I, I, I so like that. Two different games um, for people who played ice hockey is a lot more dump and chase, past you know get cycle the puck around, um, look for your chances. Low scoring games, um, five on five, which is fun, and then roller hockey is four on four. A lot more um, finesse, skating the puck up, higher scoring games. Um, so it's wherever I can find. Um, like a good pickup or rec league, I'll, I'll I'll jump in and play. It's a, a lot easier to play pickup roller than it is to play pickup ice. There's just less uh, less opportunities. So yeah, there's less barriers to entry of like having a nice cold place to kind of go into versus you know bringing the the skates and the the yeah. stick and all of that. Uh, I love it. And last kind of uh, get to know you question as we we jump into things is uh, who is someone who you admire? Um, I'm going to go with the Tom Brady answer. I'm going to go with my dad. Uh, he, uh, he was an entrepreneur growing up. He was actually a financial advisor, started his own firm, grew that up. Um, market crashed, pivoted, decided, you know what? I don't need all this overhead, went into business by himself, uh, and then ran the business with, you know, only one other person, um, working under him for probably the last 30 or so years. And, um, He's my best friend, my rock, my therapist, and somebody I look up to, you know, pretty much every day. So, um, got to go with my dad. Yeah, no, that is that is a, a great answer. When you first said I'm going to go with the Tom Brady answer, I thought, wait, actual Tom, like Tom Brady is the, the person. Which there's things to admire about him as well. As a Cincinnati Bengal fan, I've despised the Patriots for a long time, and I'm kind of rooting for him at you know 43 years old, taking a new team to the the Super Bowl. So we'll see. But I, I like the answer of the dad even even more, and even those those lessons that you picked up from him, which I'm sure have uh, applied for you now. Which you know I want to start to to talk about right. So you you have a little bit of this uh entrepreneurial spirit and a lot of our listeners do as well do you remember the first way that you made money like did you get money from chores did you have a childhood business did it was it like nope just my first job out of college do you remember how yeah first uh first way i made money very entrepreneurial i was selling my halloween candy on the bus uh in elementary school it's probably in like fourth or fifth grade and we'd go uh you'd go trick-or-treating and then i had this um orange pumpkin bucket that would keep my Halloween candy and that would sit on top of the refrigerator. And there were some cabinets next to the refrigerator that I can climb up on. My parents didn't really know that I knew how to do that or that I was doing that. So I'd go up there and grab a head full of candy, put it in my backpack. And then kids had money for the, you know, school supplies, school bookstore. Mm-hmm. So they'd, you know, get like, you know, pencils or erasers or, you know, index cards and things like that. And they ended up buying candy from me on the bus. Uh, parents, other kids' parents didn't like that too much. And the principal called my dad and said, Hey, uh, we appreciate your son's entrepreneurial spirit, but we, kindly ask them to stop selling kids sugar um right before they go home to their parents and uh yes yeah, so i got i got narked on i got ratted out by by somebody along the way but that was the uh that was the first first uh i guess uh foray into yeah entrepreneurship for me which I, and I love it. So you weren't like, I'm going to steal this. Cause I would think to most, most kids would be like, Oh, I'm, I, I figured out how to climb up to this 10. I'm going to steal it for myself to eat it. You're like, no, I'm going to like take it to make money. Did you save that money? Did you buy like baseball cards or something? Like what did you do with the money that you made? 
I bet you I probably bought more candy with it, but like knew that I can get like, you know, a dollar for a bag of Skittles and then I can go back to the store and get like way more stuff for it. I don't know. I probably worked it out of my head exactly like that. I It's, it's funny because the next thing I did was I knew the value of Pogs and Pokemon cards which were popular when I was in, in um, let's say like end of elementary school or uh, beginning of middle school. And so I knew all the values. So I would trade people based on the values, not on like what looked cool or whatever else. Right. And then I'd go to the um, Tri-County uh, flea market and sell them to the, you know, the collectors and folks there. So I'd, I'd work my way up and I'd, you know, I'd, I'd get a pack for however much it was. And then I'd trade, trade, trade. And then I'd go there and sell the card for 20 or 30 or 40 bucks or something like that. And then I, you know, go and do it again. So I remember I, 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 uh, I won like a really expensive card playing like one-on-one basketball with some kid uh, in like, oh, man, it must've been like fifth or sixth grade or something like that. And he, uh, he didn't want to pay up. So I like, took my bicycle, like rode over to his house, like knocked on his door. He's like upstairs in his room. I'm like, his mom opens the door and it was just like, I beat your son fair and square in basketball. He owes me this Pokemon card. I'm here to collect. And she like made him come downstairs and give me the card. And I went to the flea market. So that was like a nice one. I sold it for like 50 or 60 bucks or something like that. That's amazing. Well, first of all, uh, shout out to Pogs, which I have not thought about in years. So yeah. great throwback there for our listeners listening to Pogs. Oh yeah. And I like the I like the I like the holding true, man. Are are you sure this is this this sounds like the origin story of someone in the mob? You're like, I got narked on for the first job that I had, and then someone wasn't paying up, so I went and like had the conversation. I was a, I was a little hustle. I, I like. This is why I'm in a uh, like in entrepreneurship. I just I loved the like the business aspect of it, starting something, making money. Um, you know, I'm sure there are generational scars that are deep rooted in like why that's fun for me. Um, you know, go there and therapy. I'm sure um, one day. But yeah, it, it's always been it's it it's always felt like building something or building towards something. You know, I've always had a um, interesting relationship with money where money to me has meant freedom, freedom to do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted to, you know, your parents can tell you, you can't get that toy because they buy it for you. But right. if you have your own money then you can get that toy, whatever it is, right? Like whether it's that or, you know, you can pay for your parents' medical bills or you could pay for your kid's college tuition or whatever those things are. I find that, you know, they say money doesn't buy happiness, but like, I feel like that's the most privileged saying in the world. Cause like the people that are saying that are like, mm-hmm. they have their universal basic needs covered and they have the privilege of saying, well, money doesn't buy happiness. Whereas like in most parts of the world, like no money, money buys life, money buys freedom, money buys a lot of things that, you know, make life a lot easier. And uh, it's, it's probably one of the main reasons why I ended up in the profession that I'm in, which is, you know, sales hacker and now selling, you know, now, uh, you know, the, the leading sales engagement uh, software company, but mm-hmm. helping salespeople make more money is actually really fulfilling to me. And I think sales was always a taboo. Ooh, you're, you know, you're a used car salesman or that's like too salesy or whatever. But, you know, to me, it's just people who, you know, didn't have family connections, maybe didn't have family money, didn't go to Ivy League school, like couldn't get into investment banking, in some cases didn't even go to college. And sales is the ultimate playing field where everybody can make money and make as much money as uh, correlating with how hard that they work. 
and whatever they do with that money is up to them. But I like to think that like, that's pretty special, whether you're that parent who can now buy, you know, your son, the Jordans, you know, the basketball shoes that you never had growing up or, you know, take your kids to Disneyland because your parents couldn't afford to take you there when you were a kid. And now you want, that was always a goal for you as a parent or put your kids through college because, you know, you never were able to, to, you know, afford that luxury or pay for your parents' medical bills, whatever it is. But I don't know. It's, it's, it's to me, what I do today is deeply connected to, I guess, how I was brought up and, you know, my, yeah. the passion projects, whether they were mob mentality like or not as a, you know, uh, elementary school, grade school student. Yeah, well, and I think it it's a great perspective. One, I haven't heard it articulated that way, which I think is so fantastic. You're right. The the saying "money doesn't buy happiness" is a privileged position to being saying you articulate. I think I think very well, and and how empowering that is to give people wealth, that freedom to choose, etc. By by helping them with the skill, like you said, that has this great playing field, regardless of where you come from. If you can't influence, you can be good in this position. So I'm curious. I mean, what would you say that you are? like particularly good at what skill set is it that sales piece is it the hustler is it you know something else and and how did you discover that along the way um i think it's actually something that i got again to mention my father like something i got from him is is people uh people skills relationship skills um and i think there are some things that i maybe was born with that make me good at that like my memory is is really good hence the, the elephant um Oh, in the background, I've got a, a really incredible memory, and um, what it allows me to do is really connect with people in a much more authentic, but also like long-term manner. I mean, I, we could have a conversation at a conference, and you know, run into each other three years later, and I can ask you about how your kids are doing, you know, first and last name, whatever you you name it, oh, wow. um, and you know, oh, how's your kid doing? They still playing hockey? Whatever it is. And I think that's pretty special because, you know, it shows that I listen. It shows that um, I care or that I, mm-hmm. I, you know, index that relationship higher than, you know, most people normally would. Um, but I think like a financial advisor, which, you know, I mentioned what my father was, is really just a money therapist. Your job is to understand what people's goals are mm-hmm. financially, but also in life and how to help them get there. So if you start working with somebody in the beginning of their career and they sit down and they tell you, you know, my goal is to retire at this age and put my three kids through college, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then you construct their portfolio in a way where they might not be exposed to too much risk, but they need a little bit of risk with, you know, how much the money they're making right now, what their career trajectory looks like to get to this place. And then you guide them over that amount of time when, you know, key milestones happen and you're there when they get their first house and their first mortgage and they have their first kids and all those different things. They have to start saving money for their college, whatever else. And, um, and so I, uh, I grew up very close with my father and I, um, I, I, he had an office that was halfway between our house and the, the main rink that I played hockey at. And so we would go after, after work or after school, he'd pick me up, he'd take me to hockey. And then a lot of times like, we'd have to stop there on the way home and he'd have to do a couple things or whatever else. And, um, we spent a lot of long drives playing, uh, travel hockey and whatever else where he'd tell me about his job or tell me about his clients or tell me about these relationships and things like that. And I think, uh, you know, being at his office a lot when he was working on phone calls, things like that, I got to absorb 
a lot of those people skills. I think made him really good at his job in financial advisory. It makes me really good at my job in sales because sales is con- consultative. You're a trusted advisor. It's the same thing. I'm not helping you with your personal financial, you know, uh, uh, future or whatnot. Right. But I'm kind of doing that with that area of your your business that I'm helping with. Mm-hmm. So I think it translates. Yeah, I think there's a lot there. Well, and also how great because I feel like it seems so common for parents to almost shield their kids from what they do, not talk about it. Like for whatever reason, they're like, no, you know, mom or dad just has to go to work and then never explains what that work is or what they're doing. And so for you to actually be able to, to see it and observe it and, and kind of, you know, through osmosis, almost learn some of these skill sets and then apply it in, in this different context. And so I'm curious, you have this skill of, of sales, of connecting with people of memory and you start out in some sales role, but then sales roles, and then you pivot into starting um, sales hacker. What was what was the prompt to say, "Hey, I want to do something on my own," rather than just be a good salesperson at other organizations? What was like, "Nope, I want to own this thing that I'm doing." Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of really good CEOs start out as as salespeople first, and I mean, at the end of the day, building a business is all about hiring the right people and. If you're good at sales, then you can recruit really well and hire the right people and get people to buy into your vision. It means you could raise money. It means you can sell your product. It means you could bring you know top talent in. So I think like you kind of have to have that to be a really good entrepreneur, um, even if you're a technical co-founder, or at least find somebody that you can sell and have them do the rest. Um, yeah. You know, to join you for that journey. So um, I think there's a lot of overlap between being in sales and like running your own business. Now I didn't know anything about the operational side of the business and. That I had to learn on the fly, and um, it just so happened that the business I started was also, you know, revolving around sales. So I really liked what I was doing, and I think when you like what you do, uh, you're you're in a pretty good, uh, you're going to have a pretty high chance of success. Now, I think like the whole like follow your passion thing is bullshit. It's not about that because your passion might not be profitable. But if you can find an overlap of things that are profitable and good businesses mixed with things you actually like to do, you become you know somewhat unstoppable. Because I'm going to work when you're not if you don't like what you're doing. Because I, I you know I just like it. You mentioned Instagram a couple times, and you know I, I post on there you know once in a while about the trips we go on. But um, I'm on LinkedIn a lot, posting on LinkedIn, posting about sales, interacting with my people. And, you know, I've spoken on SKOs and, and, and things like that with other companies. And there was like, how do I build my brand? Like, how do I, how do I do what you do? Like, doesn't that take a lot of time? It's like, oh, I just, I, I enjoy, that's my social network of choice. Instead of being on TikTok or Snapchat or Instagram or whatever else, I happen to be engaging with, you know, people from work on LinkedIn. I think that's, um, I've, I've been able to, to find that intersection of what, the market wanted what made actual money and what I liked doing. Um, so I kind of fell into sales hacker. Uh, I was an early employee at Udemy was the first sales hire and built out their, uh, the sales side of their business from scratch. We were doing some really hacky stuff, leveraging virtual assistants in the Philippines to be our SDRs and leveraging a bunch of modern sales technology. And, um, and people picked up on it and we grew really fast. 
and everybody wanted to know how we were doing it. And, uh, you know, at the time we had only raised a, you know, a small amount of funding. So we didn't have all the resources that all these, all these other companies, bigger companies had. So we had to generate more revenue using less resources. We call that sales hacking. Yeah. And, uh, that I, I kind of parlayed that experience and the interest that people had in talking to us into our first conference, uh, actually it was a meetup first, then our, then meetup turned into a conference. Conference turned into multiple, multiple conferences, which turned into the blog, which turned into the podcast and meetups and uh, larger meetups and um, and webinars. And then we moved most of the business from conferences and in-person stuff to digital. Once we saw kind of a shift happening in the marketplace, we were very much ahead of the curve there and uh, took most of our business to digital. And um, I'm you know very good at delegating. We had teammates in the in the Philippines, India, you name it, and um, got to a point where we were, you know, wildly profitable business doing multiple millions in revenue. And I was able to whittle my hours down to like way less than it, than it needed to be. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it's uh, a pretty impressive journey. And like you said, at the very beginning, that starting point of like, yeah, just follow your dreams or just follow the thing that you're passionate about. Um, like you said, is it's not always going to work out. There has to be that intersection. And like, for example, and I don't know how good you are at hockey, but it's not like you're like, oh, I really love hockey. So I'm going to make, you know, a living out of playing hockey. It's like, it's a thing that I do for fun. And this other passion that I have, because maybe it is more profitable or, or, you know, there's, there's people willing to give me money for that can explore that. So I think that's helpful for people as they're thinking about if they are not, if they want to be an entrepreneur and what to start that that having a market is is very valuable. And then like you said, the iterations of it, of if you're passionate about it, you're going to be willing to work longer and harder at it than maybe, you know, someone else who's just kind of like meh about what they do. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned delegation as kind of a key. Anything else that sticks out to you in your mind that helps you to go from, hey, we're just um, a conference to now we are this thing that, you know, we're, is, it, is it constantly evolving? Is it being really good at, uh, like you said, the delegation piece, is it always evolving the vision piece? Is it being really good at looking into the future and seeing where trends are going? Any other things that you would attribute that growth to? Yeah, I heard somebody say this once. It's like uh, being good at VC isn't about seeing the future. It's about seeing the present very clearly. And I think it's the same thing for having a vision as you know a, a CEO. It's it's you know, being a visionary isn't like, oh, here's what crystal ball is going to happen in the future. It's like, here's what's happening right now and how the trends are, are turning. You don't have to see 20 years out. But if you can see now very clearly, you can see where the, uh, you know, the, the, the energy is starting to flow. So for us at, at Sales Hacker, um, we were an in-person conference business. And when we started, the only companies that through conferences were fairly large uh, companies. So mm -hmm. like Tableau had a customer conference. They had over a thousand employees. Salesforce had Dreamforce. They were over 10,000 employees. You had to be a pretty big business to throw a conference because conferences were loss leaders. You lost mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars on your conference, but you would sell software from it. Yep. Then like, Two years into Sales Hacker, let's call it 2015, all of a sudden venture capital started ramping up like crazy, especially in the sales space. Sales technology mm -hmm. companies started raising a lot of money. By 2015, 2016, maybe you saw a couple more companies now that had you know 50 to 100 million dollars in funding. 
all of a sudden they could all throw customer conferences yeah. because they could lose money on, on the conferences and make money on software. So we saw the writing on the wall fairly quickly that like, oh man, it'd be tough to throw a sales conference and compete with these venture backed companies that are also throwing sales conferences for their customer conferences because our main differentiator was the content. And as they get more and more customers, their customers are going to speak at their, at their conferences and they're going to be able to get the same people on top of that. They could lose money on their conferences so they can get Nelly to do the after party and Obama to speak, uh, you know, at the keynote and, uh, you know, serve sushi for lunch and steak for, you know, happy hour and lose, you know, a million or two on the event and call it a, a good day because they'd have, you know, a hundred million in pipeline influenced at the event. Whereas like we had to make our events profitable. That was our, yeah. our product. So we pivoted from the in-person conferences to the digital stuff well before, you know, virtual events or anything else were, were really popular because we saw the writing on the wall for that. But we also realized like, okay, wow, there's a, there's a, there's a market in podcasts, there's a market in webinars, there's a market in all, in, you know, in, in, um, on the digital side. So mm -hmm. that pivot was, you know, for me seeing the present fairly clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the other things that made us um, really good were that because we had this brand in media, we were a really good stepping stone for like anybody who was a rising star in their careers. Um, mm -hmm. So if you like put in a year with Sales Hacker as an employee, your next job, you can get hired anywhere and get paid, you know, double or triple in some cases of what you were making before you got hired at Sales Hacker. And we were, we, we developed like almost like a mini mafia where, you know, you have the PayPal mafia, I'm sure, you know, magnitude is more successful than the Sales Hacker mafia. But we did have people who would come and they worked for us for a little bit. And then the next job that they got was like, you know, much better title tier one company versus the tier three company they were at before making, you know, anywhere between one and a half to, to three X what they were making before they got the job in a year. So we, uh, we were really good at attracting kind of diamond in the rough, like up and coming talent. And, um, and then we also hired remote. So we didn't need to be, you know, uh, bound to, you know, geographic constraints. So we mm -hmm. hired our, head of sales out of Vancouver who, you know, was cheaper because Canada is cheaper, but also phenomenal talent. We hired um, our head of content out of India who had been working for SaaS companies uh, out there and, and had done a bunch of um, study abroad programs in the UK and Singapore and stuff like that. So they were, uh, you know, they were, we, we paid um, very low five figures for somebody who, probably well, very low, what four figures a month per, for somebody who should be costing five figures a month and you know, us yeah. salary. So, um, that's a substantial savings when you do that. And we mm -hmm. had a team of virtual assistants in the Philippines, similar to, to, you know, what I did at Udemy with SDRs yeah. doing a lot of, uh, a lot of kind of backend admin work for us. And mm -hmm. so I just think that's like such an unfair advantage when you can delegate like that. Well, yeah, and I think that I love the articulation that, you know, visionary doesn't necessarily mean 20 years in the future, but being present, because I think a lot of times people are like, no, I'm, I'm sure what, I, I know what's going on in the present, but they're often one year, three years, five years behind of like, 
no, your your present is really 2015 or whatever. I also love your you know the idea of like both Nelly and Obama at the same conference. Like what a yeah. what a combination of those those two. I would totally attend that. But you're right. Word, be- the the key word in the phrase is um, seeing the present clearly. Like I think there yeah. are there are a lot of people who think they're seeing the present and think they're visionaries because you know they they understand what's going on now and here's where the market's going. But like. I, I do think there are most of those people do not see the present clearly. They see that they see their version of the present. They don't actually see everything that's happening, you know, where the yeah. pieces are moving. So that's what, that's what stalls your business more than trying to find, figure out, all right, well, you know, what's, what's going to be the main thing in three years. It's like, no, you, you need to focus on what's happening now right. and you're not seeing that correctly. Like you're building for this when your customer wants that. And they're they're the present, and if you don't yeah. nail that, like you're you're starting your you're 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 starting on a false foundation. Yeah, you know you're climbing up the wrong mountain. Like you don't get to you don't get to continue climbing when you climb up the wrong mountain. Like you have to come back down, and then like start on the new mountain and go back up. So like you've got to you got to take steps backward to go steps forward. So you don't want to have a false start. Yeah. You don't want to be, yeah, spend too. That's a great point. The, the longer you spend climbing that mountain, the further you actually have to go back down before you can start climbing the right. You don't necessarily always get to just jump across. And so you mentioned customer and this is a piece. So, you know, I think people are certainly familiar with sales or certainly in, in, in familiar with sales, say enablement, but your kind of focus and kind of help to bring this term to life is sales engagement. And so what is, if people are listening like, I actually haven't heard that art the idea before what is sales engagement yeah so uh sales enablement is uh softwares like hubspot or i'm sorry high spot showpad seismic uh things that you provide to your sales reps to you know have them understand what the latest content or digital assets are that markets created for them those types of things uh sales engagement are all the all the um it's your system of action it's all the things that your your reps need to do uh, to get in touch with their prospects and customers all in one place. So if they're sending emails, making phone calls, even connecting on LinkedIn, various other social channels, it's one place they can do all that that sits on top of your system of record and um, and allows them to get in touch, take all their action, take all their the, the, do all their activities. Uh, VP of sales engagement, you know, for for us at Outreach is making sure we are operating best in class in our own sales engagement strategy. So what are the things that we're doing inside of our business that we could be doing better, leveraging our own platform and the companies uh, that we use, the partner, the the vendors that we use around our platform. Um, And then sharing that with uh, the greater marketplace. So whether that's through content like outreach on outreach that we just launched uh, recently or individually inside of sales cycles uh, with our enterprise and strategic customers. Um, we want to be a, uh, again, trusted advisor is the term mm-hmm. that I use in sales where it's more than just like, Hey, here's a product solves these problems, you know, good luck. We want right. to be someone who can help you become a best in class organization, um, you know, for driving revenue, driving pipeline, you know, whatever it is that you're, um, driving expansion, whatever your top priorities are, we want to help you be best in class. And, it, and, and that's full spectrum. That's providing the, the solution um, and the platform, but also giving you the 
learnings and you know our experience with our customers, all the data points and insights that we have to be able to say like, hey, here's how you can A-B test these things. Here's what you should start with. And here's how you're going to get the most success out of the platform. So I, uh, I lead that practice um, internally here. I ran marketing um, from, let's see, uh, like 30 to 80 or so. And then uh, we hired a CMO and transitioned into this role. Uh, so okay. we're, yeah. I like one and to your, I love the terminology trusted advisor. Like I think, you know, as, uh, there's a great, uh, sales kind of speaker guru named Phil, Phil M. Jones, who talks like, you know, sales is ultimately just earning the right to make a recommendation. It's getting to know if you're doing it right, it's learning enough about that person to then become that trusted advisor so that you can help them solve the, you know, the challenges that they, they have. So from your your perspective, what what mistakes do people within sales that maybe aren't doing some of this stuff, what are they making? What are they like missing uh, to that's preventing them from being becoming that trusted advisor? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think a lot of salespeople, they get into a sales cycle and they have they're thinking too far ahead. So you have you, you're you're starting a sales cycle. Now, obviously, there's many different types of sales cycles. There's transactional stuff where you're selling, you know, pretty low price things. They could swipe the credit card, whatever. And we're going to talk about like enterprise sales cycles where there's multiple mm -hmm. stakeholders, long sales cycle. You're selling, you know, five, six figure product or whatnot. Nobody's paying for it on a credit card. Um, for us, I think, you know, the, the, the biggest mistake people make is they think too far ahead. So you're in the first meeting, you're thinking about closing the deal. You're doing it wrong. In the first meeting, you should think about getting the second meeting. In the second meeting, you should think about getting the third meeting. It's really just about getting that next step. What can I do the, in the first meeting to get this person's attention enough that they're going to take this seriously, put this maybe higher up on their priority list, maybe bring in a couple colleagues. But like that's as far ahead as you're going. You're not thinking about sending the DocuSign. You're not thinking about like what implementation all that kind of stuff might look like yet. Um, you know, In some cases, you might go touch lightly on implementation in that call. But mm -hmm. the reality of the situation is you got the first meeting, you got to get the second, you got to get the third. Mm -hmm. And like, what are the things that you need to do in, in your formal sales process to make sure you're checking off as you go through that? So you need a su success plan that you review uh, with the customer, you get on the same page, you know, is this timeline look correct? Are these the right people that we need to have involved, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think too many salespeople, they get, they get a little giddy. Oh, I got a meeting, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're going to close this deal. And you really need to think more compartmentalized about, you know, the, the, the sales process. Uh, certainly. And it's, it's similar to advice that I've heard on for when people are in job search mode of like the goal of the, say, a resume is not to get you a job, it's to get you an interview. The goal of the interview may not be to get the offer, but to get to the, you know, the next stage of the interview or whatever. Like, I like that kind of you know, that, that level of focus. And I know in, in one of the writings, I was, I was doing some, some of the research just kind of on your background. And one of the things that you shared is, you know, as a tip is the idea of like kind of coming out and starting strong. So I'm, I'm curious, what's your perspective on adding either fun or even humor to this process? Should it be more of a serious thing or is there a component to getting to know potential clients as humans versus just a like, here's a solution for you? Yeah, um, if you have, you know, a really great thing that you do, the fun part of your personality that you want to shine, you should you should use that in your sales process. I think that like helps more often than it hurts. 
So that'll be a benefit to you. Like I've seen um, reps do some funny stuff on LinkedIn where they do like TikTok videos or things like that. And I think that like that helps build their brand, makes them feel, makes them human, makes them approachable, whatnot, makes them somebody you want to work with, somebody you want to do business with. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's shining the personality through. And then there's also the things that you should do in a deal cycle that like don't necessarily directly have to do with the deal, but make you that trusted advisor, which is sharing learnings, sharing education, sharing experience. Like what are the things that, that they care about? And we just came out with our, our outreach on outreach, um, like premium content series that I mentioned before. One of the first articles that we came out with was because it's outreach on outreach It's how we use our own product. And the first article was how we on our marketing team, marketing and sales aligns to do follow-ups for virtual events. And right now virtual events is huge because there are no in-person conferences happening. Everybody's doing virtual events. And so we, we basically wrote out everything that we do to pre and post event follow-up and how we think about these events. And, um, and we have our reps sharing those with our customers and our reps might get on a discovery call and say, Hey, um, you know, do you have any intention of doing a virtual event this year? If so, you know, here's an article for you, or maybe they go to their website before they have the call and they look around the website and they see that they are doing a virtual event and they send that, you know, before they have the conversation, it's like, Hey, I know we're set for a call later, or would you like to schedule a call? Here's some information in the meantime. Mm -hmm. And at least you're sharing some, something that they might care about um, ahead of time, you're helping them with their job. And, um, it could be something original that your company put together, or it could be industry. Now you can say, Hey, I came across this like analyst, uh, research that I thought you might find interesting. Here's a stat from it that like really resonated with, you know, the thing that you said in this article once, or the thing that you said on LinkedIn or, you know, other folks in your role have, uh, it's resonated with them, whatever it is that you think is going to help. Um, being proactive about doing that is is probably the most important thing you can do. I think second most important thing is is probably letting your personality shine through in your in your prospecting. And if you've got that that funny bone, you know, let it rip, let it go. Yeah, I know that. Uh, I think two things that come to mind is one, you know, I've gotten cold emails before that just completely ignored as kind of a business owner, and then one that still stands out to me is someone sent a follow up to it, and the only thing in the follow up email was the John Travolta meme of a GIF of him just kind of like looking around, and it was like something that made me laugh. It was like something that I'm not used to. A, a friend of mine also told me about a someone who used to do cold calls and would say, you know, would start his call with this is a cold call. So now's your chance to hang up. And he said, people absolutely still hung up, but a lot of people would kind of laugh and be like, all right, you made me laugh. So I'll at least give you another 30 seconds or something like that to, to start. So I think humor can sometimes do it. And I think, you know, to your point, you know, when we've been doing some work with, with IBM, a big focus of theirs, of this belief that a lot of times people will buy from the first person to provide them value. And that value can come in a different ways. And like you said, just doing a little bit of research and be like, oh, they have an event coming up. So let me help them with that. And now that they already know this is a values-based relationship as opposed to, you know, a transactional one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I fully agree. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm quite impressed with is, you know, you are in addition to the role at out, outreach, you're also the founder and general partner of GTM fund. You're, you lecture at university of Washington. You're an author, you're a father. Uh, you clearly are hiking. You're doing uh, hockey as well. Like, 
how do you manage what seems like so much? Do you just like never sleep? Do you have like one of those cryogenic chambers or something like that? Uh, how do you, you know, I know for some of our listeners, that's their question is like, how do you find this like quote unquote work-life balance? What's your strategy? Oh man. I mean, uh, it definitely gets tougher when you introduce kids. You know, I feel like I'm in the workplace with, uh, and competing with a hand and a leg tied behind my, my back. Um, but you know, you, you don't do other things. Uh, I don't binge watch Netflix. I don't play golf. I don't ski or snowboard. So like, you know, some people go away for the weekends and do all those things. I, I get work done in the mornings. Like I, structure my days uh smoothly i know when the baby's gonna go down for a nap and i can get two hours of work in and i know when you know i can get some coverage from a nanny or or my wife and i can get you know a little more work done or i know when um you know uh i'm gonna be in a, a flow state one night and you know just crank till midnight or something like that at you know after 7 p.m when nobody's emailing me and i got a window like that so i i try to find um you know, I think there's, there's probably names for it or whatnot, but if I could find like windows of work time, that's when I get most of my work done. If it's chopped up, it's not going to work like that. I also batch my schedule out the same way. So, you know, I've got blocks of meetings and then free time and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll suffer through the three, four five hour blocks if I need to, without any breaks to be able to have like open space of two hours, three hours to get work done versus like, half hour call, half hour off, half hour call. It doesn't work. Like you're just, you're not going to get anything done in those, in those stop start times. So I think it's about understanding yourself first and foremost. And like when you're good, when you're on and, and you know, when you can get that work done. Um, the books I wrote in a short period of time. So I wrote the first book in like six days. I think it was from Bali, the second wow. book in five days from Bali and the third book in like a week from Miami. Um, so it's just about the prep work and, and, you know, a lot of the prep work is in, in two of the books cases been a lot of delegation. So, um, hacking sales, I sent out a survey to 70 different companies. Uh, and then I included a bunch of those companies in the book and in the survey, they wrote, you know, a little bit about their product and things like that. And so like, I had to tie a lot of that together, but a lot of the, the writing was already done when I got that survey back. It was really about tying things together and then adding the the workflows to it, which I knew like the back of my hand. Uh, second book, um, I was writing a lot on LinkedIn and LinkedIn has like 1300 word uh, limits. So I think I wrote for like three or four months straight, a bunch of stuff on like life hacks and things like that. And they were really resonating. I knew exactly what was hitting based on the amount of likes and comments and views. So I was like, oh man, I should just like turn this into a book, just, you know, uh, put it all together. And so by the time I said that, I was already at 15,000 words. So then it was, again, it was about stringing it all together, filling in a lot of the blanks. And, you know, if I can get, if I can get time to just sit down and write, I can write for like 16, 18 hours straight and just like, just go into a, yeah. a zone. So for me, that's how I like to get things done. I think like if I ever got an opportunity to write a book and they were like, yeah, do an hour a day for a year and your book's done, like I would just, they would never get done. Yeah. It just, it just <laughs> never happened. I need, I need that flow state to kick in. Um, and it was the same thing with sales engagement. You know, we, we mm -hmm. leveraged a lot of our partners to come in and chime in and, and customers to chime in on things that they were doing in their businesses. And I think that added a lot of credibility to the book, um, especially mm -hmm. for, you know, a, a startup that was our size at the time. 
And, um, you know, we had customers from fairly large uh, businesses chiming in on, you know, here's how we're using the outreach to do X, Y, and Z, or here's what our sales engagement strategy look like, looks like. And um, I made the book, I think, more powerful, but it also took a lot of the writing responsibilities off our plate. So it's really just about doing things in, in you know, work, work uh, smarter, not harder type stuff. But I think you kind of, to, to win in life, that expression's wrong. You have to work smarter and harder. That's yeah. it. Both. Got to be, be a bit of both. And well, you know, I think two of the big, big takeaways for me from our conversation today, uh, Max, which have been fantastic. I've, I've been really enjoyed hearing the journey. One is to that point of intentionality, right? Like you're saying, I'm going to, I can play hockey because I didn't binge watch Bit Bridgerton over the weekend or whatever. Like I have the like things that I can do. So making those conscious choices of things where you want to, to spend that time. And then really kind of what's been, you know, said throughout in some of this is, is creative delegation that, you know, how are you leveraging different resources or different people's capabilities in different ways, whether that was early on using resources that maybe other people weren't using, or in this case, like, yeah, helping other, having other people do some of the writing because of the research and the way that you've done it. So, uh, for me, I think those are, those are two big things. Any last thoughts, anything still resonating with you? Like one last thing I, you know, certainly want people to know, or if there's like one idea or challenge that people should be left with. Not really. I mean, uh, if you, if you want to get in further contact, uh, LinkedIn is a good place to find me. I'm on there the most, uh, you mentioned my Instagram post about a lot of family stuff, travel, things like that on there as well. Um, but uh, yeah, companies are Sales Hacker and Outreach and, uh, and now GTM Fund uh, as well.